Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, workers and peasants, liberals and Jacobins, the Mexican Revolution in Global Perspective. This was the title of University of Oxford Professor Alan Knight's keynote at the 2016 Globalizing the History of Revolutions conference, Revolutions in the Age of Acceleration. This conference took place in University College Dublin in October 2016 and was organised by Dr Mark Jones, who spoke to me about the background to the conference. My name is Mark Jones. I'm an Irish Research Council Elevate Fellow at University College Dublin. Um, The Elevate Fellowship is co-funded by the European Commission's Marie Curie programme. With that fellowship, I've spent two years as a visiting fellow at the Free University of Berlin, where I was hosted by Professor Sebastian Conrad, who holds the Chair of Global History. My background is is as a historian of modern Germany. I've just published my first book, which is called Founding Weimar, Violence in the German Revolution of 1918-1919, which was published in October 2016 by Cambridge University Press. As its title suggests, it's a book that examines the role and place of violence in the German Revolution of 1918-1919, the revolution that brought an end to the First World War and established the Weimar Republic, the short-lived German democracy that preceded the Third Reich. While I was in Berlin, I began to think uh, a lot more about how I might put the uh, European revolutions, such as the German Revolution of 1918-19, into a more global historical perspective. And to do this, I um, developed a conference series, um, which I gave the title Globalising the History of Revolutions, um, which was funded uh, generously by the Irish Research Council and by University College Dublin. The aim of the series was to do a number of things, um, one issue for me was that 2016 was the centenary of the Easter Rising of 1916, which is really the foundational moment of the Irish state. And like many like-minded colleagues here in Dublin, I wanted to try and think about ways in which we could insert Irish history into more broader global context. More generally, I wanted to see ways in which we could think about how the history of revolutions and the many cases of revolutions in the late 19th an early 20th century could be connected together, compared, contrasted, and to try and discover ways that we could think about uh, new approaches to the, to the development of global history using the history of revolutions as a, a subject matter that would bring both global and political history closer together. Uh, the conference series brought together a range of international experts dealing with um, cases of revolution in China, Iran, the Ottoman Empire, Russia... Mexico and Ireland and, of course, across Eastern and Southeastern Europe. The lecture you're about to hear is a talk that was given by Professor Alan Knight of Oxford University, who's one of the world's leading historians for the Mexican Revolution. Alan was asked to talk about how global approaches to the past might change our understanding of that revolution and its place in the 20th century history. Right, thank you very much. Um, And uh, thank you in particular to Mark for organising very interesting, wide-ranging Um, conference, and in particular, this is the first time I've ever been to a sort of global history conference, which we have had three consecutive Mexican papers. I mean, normally they don't give us the time of day, maybe one token paper. Here you've got three. So, you know, we we applaud your ecumenical approach. Um, I'm talking about the Mexican Revolution, which is my topic, but I'm doing it comparatively. Uh, Why should we do comparative studies? Uh, Some people think you can create sort of great overarching models that cover all revolutions. I'm sceptical, but at the very least, as individual historians, say at Mexico, it's quite useful to look at other revolutions to note comparisons or similarities, which is what I will be doing. Uh, I'm not going to make a great thing about 
global, and I'm certainly I'm not going to get into acceleration. I'm still thinking about that. But regarding globalization, uh, what I'm going to do resembles more what Eric did this morning, which is I'm going to look at what I would call kind of structural similarities between revolutions, even though they're separated by space and time. There are connections, actual links. The, sort of the globalization of links and connections is relevant, but I'm not going to stress that very much. And I'm also going to go beyond, though I'm going to talk about some of the revolutions in our fin de siècle period, I'm actually going to go way back and touch on France, and I'm going to jump forward to talk a bit about Cuba, so I'm not observing a strict chronological framework. The first few minutes, uh, I'm going to clear the ground. This is a kind of negative exercise uh, to suggest what perhaps we can or can't do when looking at revolutions comparatively. And after a few minutes, I will get to the meat of the paper where I stop being a bit negative and sort of splitting and I go to a more positive sort of lumping approach. And at that point, sort of the sceptical splitting approach gives way to a more sort of faith-based lumping approach where I will be saying things which may not be very accurate. Um, I, I think, I hope we can agree there is a kind of useful category of revolution, uh, meaning a movement, a revolt of greater substance and consequence than a mere revolt. This is the famous Duc de Rochefoucauld-Lioncourt. Uh, Some of you may remember in 1789, he, telling the king that the Bastille has been stormed, and the king says, so, so, is it a revolt? He says, no, sir, it's a revolution which I thought was pretty good for a chinless, um, well, not actually chinless, but for a French aristocrat, this showed considerable sort of historical and social uh, perception. So revolutions are the big beasts in the much bigger jungle of revolts and rebellions. Now, Latin America notoriously, the history is littered with unsuccessful and some successful revolts, uh, and indeed some revolutions, uh, some more successful, some less, such as Guatemala 1954, which Tom just referred to. And the failed versus successful categorization is obviously very important. We touched on that this morning, why revolutions end. Some end because they've been crushed, they're unsuccessful. Some end because they have been at least partly successful. I won't go into how you may try to evaluate success. I mean, survival is one of them, not having a counter-revolution. There are other ways, but I won't go into it. I had written a bit about that anyway. Uh, some analysts of revolution would go further and posit a particular sort of supercategory of great or social revolutions. Normally they would include English, French, Russian, Chinese, Cuban. I would like to include the Mexican. That gives us a very rough sort of tripartite system. Mere revolt, revolutions, and great or social revolutions. Now how you make the cut between these is a tricky question. Maybe you reject the whole typology. Uh, you can't measure these things with any precision. It's a matter of informed judgment. But that's actually very often the case when, as historians, we deal with big concepts like the nation crisis. We touched on legitimacy, hegemony. You can't measure it. Uh, you can't be very precise, but it may still be a useful uh, organising concept. It's also useful at the outset to make a qualitative distinction. Some analysts of revolution committed to a rather sort of dogmatic I would say a historical sort of Marxist view would reserve revolution for those movements which transform or fundamentally change the mode of production in a given social formation, the latter usually being a country. 
so they would often argue, and I think of many cases in respect of Mexico, the French, Russian, and Chinese revolutions were real revolutions. Poor old Mexicans couldn't manage it. That was not a real revolution because it did not transform the Mexican mode of production. Now, this seems to me, you can make a special category of those kinds of revolutions, but it seems to me to say you have to do that or you're not a real revolution seems ridiculously uh, narrow, almost stultifying. It's not even clear to me that the French Revolution would fit that demanding criterion. And, of course, a serious consequence of saying, unless you transform the mode of production, you're not a real big revolution, is it eliminates nationalist or anti-colonial revolutions. We've touched on some of that, revolutions which may be significant and political, but may also be social as well. Um, We often cite the American Revolution of 1776 as the first. You could follow Geoffrey Parker and say the revolt of the Netherlands in 1566 was actually a sort of nationalist, anti-colonial revolution. You've got the Resorgimento, the two Cuban wars of independence, uh, Philippines, later Algeria, Vietnam, and a, a case which is clearly very important, also been touched upon, this is the May the 4th movement in China. And the Chinese Revolution, I... I'm not going to say anything too risky here, but clearly the Chinese revolution is incomprehensible if its key nationalist dimension is omitted, along with other socioeconomic criteria as well. Now, I've mentioned all this partly to clear the ground. This is how we might look at revolutions and distinguish them. Uh, What I've said I don't think is either path-breaking or very contentious. Now, some people would wish to go further and try to posit that there are general laws of motion regarding revolutions, as, as Trotsky believed, or he talked about them in his history of the Russian Revolution, or some sociologists, I mean, I'm not just picking on them, but other, some analysis, analysts would look at stage theories of revolutions, that revolutions go through stages. Crane Brinton was one of the main exponents. He took the French Revolution, its supposed stages, whether he's right is another matter, of moderate radical thermidor. Uh, even if that makes sense for France, it doesn't necessarily travel very well. And the attempt to impose that template on, say, Mexico or Cuba, I think, frankly, uh, doesn't work. Uh, so I'm sceptical of that. That's not because I'm against big concepts or even some stage theories. If you're looking at economic history, stage theories, whether it's Marx or Roster or Gershenkron or Hirschman, uh, can actually be quite useful at looking at the trajectory of economy- economies. But when you're trying to look at revolutions, it seems to me there are too many twists and turns, too much sort of too many pivotal conjunctures, particularly if you're dealing with big variegated countries such as France, Mexico or China. Um, which means that even if you think you've seen a stage in one region, most historians of the Mexican Revolution are actually now regional historians, doesn't follow that the national picture is similar. So I think stage theories are frankly too systematic and not very convincing. And in that sense, I would argue that revolutions are a bit like wars. I mean, you can recognise a war, you can have a total war if you like. It doesn't mean that they follow any similar systematic uh, pattern. The, the, The pattern, the outbreak, the trajectory is different in each case. Uh, a couple of reasons, finally, for why I'm suggesting this. Uh, it seems to me that whereas economic development may follow certain clear requirements, if you're going to produce widgets for export, there are only certain number of ways you can do it, but a political, military or revolutionary 
trajectory is bound to be very different, subject both to individual decisions and errors and also to a great deal of foreign intervention and control. So we know that in many of the revolutions that we look at, uh, war and foreign intervention are crucial. First of all, war, we've talked about Russian Revolution, Ottoman Empire, Turkish War of National Liberation, the Japanese invasion in 1937 of China. Without those events the revolutions would have turned out, I think, substantially differently. Now, the Mexican Revolution is interesting because I would argue it's fairly self-contained. There were two quite limited American interventions, 1914-1916. Neither involved major campaigns. Neither, I think, were actually very consequential for the revolution as a whole. Uh, Other historians would disagree, but I I think the Mexican Revolution is quite self-contained in its dynamics. I'd argue the same, and this would be also a bit contentious, in respect of the Cuban Revolution. Prior to Castro's triumphant entry into Havana, 1st of January 1959, most of what happened in Cuba was determined very largely by the Cubans themselves, by the contending forces. The Americans played a a role, but I don't think it was decisive. Now, after this, of course, the American role became much more important, albeit ultimately very counterproductive. So some revolutions are much more self-contained. The one I'm interested in happens to be one of those. Others clearly are much more dependent on the sort of role of the geopolitical dice. Now, that's all the negative. Now I come to the more, as I say, faith-based, lumping attempt to make some sense of all of this. And what I'm going to do is focus not on the story, but on the collective actors. Now, sometimes we give them names derived from leaders. In Mexico, we talk about the Maderistas because of Madero, the Zapatistas for Zapato. That doesn't mean we think the leaders are so necessarily crucial. Um, and I'm going to focus on these collective groups in a comparative way. Uh, these are not reducible, even, to use the old phrase, in the last analysis, to social classes, but they do embody a strong class dimension. So I think the class content of these collective actors is very important, But I would add also something that I will call a little clumsily a politico-cultural dimension. So I'm wedding sort of class politics to some kind of cultural politics as well. I don't have a single neat label for this combination. Now, I did a recent study of the Mexican Revolution. We had a lot of these because of the centenary of the revolution in 2010, in which I looked at all the possible permutations you could get given the different criteria that determined who or what a revolutionary might be. Uh, You could stress, for example, class, which is often very valid, Uh, ethnicity, gender, the locality or region you come from, the political faction you might adhere to, your generation in terms of age, your ideology, whether secular or religious or both. So you have a lot of factors floating around. And if you sort of permutate all of those, you get a sort of mind-boggling number. Now, in point of fact, in reality, uh, some of those different identities make sense. They hang together in certain sort of constellations. Um, So, for example, if you take the the Zapatistas, these were, by and large, uneducated, rural people, peasants, followers of Zapata, so that's their, quote, their faction, came from a particular region, the state of Morelos. They were agraristas, they were fighting for land reform, that was their programme. In terms of their political tradition, they were popular liberal, could explain that further, and they were, in terms of religion, folk Catholic. Again, I could explain, but I'll just sort of leave that as a direct statement. So that was a very important, and it was a kind of 
constellation of beliefs and attitudes which is replicated in a number of cases. The Zapatistas are just, I think, the best case of, of several. In contrast, you could make up completely hypothetical combinations. For example, there were no female anarchist Indians in northeastern industrial Monterey. So, you know, the, the sort of a, a meaningless combination like that just doesn't work. So, what you can do as a historian, you can identify what looked to be like meaningful, recurrent, important patterns of affiliation or identity, partly class, partly non class. And I'm going to identify four of those within the Mexican and other revolutions. You do also have to say a word about the Ancien Regime. So there are really five. I'm going to start with the Ancien Regime and deal with it very quickly. So I'll do the old regime first. Then the, the four revolutionary, I'm not sure whether to call them persuasions, coalitions, constellations, uh, any of those might do. They are liberal constitutionalism, Secondly, working-class mobilisation, urban working-class mobilisation. Thirdly, peasant protest. And fourthly, what is probably more original but therefore more contentious, what I'm going to call Jacobin statism. So first a word, I'm going to talk about those four and that's it. First, old regimes. Now, old regimes, of course, are not monolithic, but they can be roughly summed up as that constellation or group of interests who resisted the revolution. In every case that I'm looking at, and I suspect in almost every case where revolutions uh, happen and are of some success, uh, the old regime is authoritarian. Uh, this is a point that Huntington and others have stressed, and it seems to me they are broadly correct. I'm not sure there's ever been a major revolution in a broadly liberal democratic society. It's not to say that that society is brilliant and perfect, but it just tend hasn't as yet happened that I'm aware of. However, the bases of authoritarianism differed. Some were clearly dynastic regimes, as in France, China, Russia, the Ottoman Empire. Others, such as Mexico or Cuba, were republican authoritarian regimes. In Mexico, the supporters of the old regime were landlords, the regular army, most foreign business, and with qualification, the church. Now, the old regime coalition clearly varies from place to place. You can't, I don't think you can talk about the foreign business interests in Ancien Regime France. In the case of the Ottoman Empire, the army was a source of both revolutionary opposition and counter-revolutionary support for the old regime. The army is split. There is one feature of old regime resistance which seems to me recurrent and worth mentioning. As old regime interests confronted incipient revolution and were forced to react to this, they became increasingly intransigent, more coercive, and arguably more illegitimate. Uh, in some cases where dynastic regimes collapsed, so-called men on horseback briefly replaced kings and emperors. So we're now going to go to a quick rogues gallery uh, of these people. First of all, we have Wan Shikai, who seized power in China, driving Sun Yat-sen into exile, subverting the republic for the time. In Russia, you have uh, Kornilov, who plotted against Kerensky's provisional government, tried but failed to crush the Petrograd Soviet, and then played a role in the white Russian counter-revolution, promising root and branch repression. I've got a nice quote from Arno Meyer of what Kornilov's view of the situation was. And what he said could easily have been echoed by the Mexican counterpart of these people. This is number three, Victoriano Huerta, uh, when the old regime fell, the old dictator Porfirio Diaz, who was quite a skillful politico, went into exile. Two years later, in 1913, there was a military coup. The existing democratic president, Madero, was overthrown and brutally executed. 
And Huerta took power trying to create a military regime, which he did for about 18 months. And it's fairly clear, I would argue, not everyone again would agree, that Huerta's policy of of, of intransigent repression made matters worse. He tried to restore the old regime, but in doing so, he actually promoted the revolution. Now, of course, some militarised repressions work. You think of Austria in 1848. We've mentioned Guatemala in 1954. Now, France is an interesting example because Napoleon, I think, sort of steered a middle course. He endorsed and exported some initial revolutionary programs, but at home he subverted republican democracy and created a new form of somewhat shaky but in also other ways durable legitimacy in, of course, the Bonapartist movement. So that's the old regime. Now moving on quickly to my four revolutionary collective actors. The first is liberal constitutionalism, typically espoused by enlightened, rather educated leaders, uh, usually of loosely bourgeois providence. Bourgeois is a notoriously loose term, which I don't normally use, but in this case I'll use it because I want to be rather sort of loose and vague. But people who also enjoyed, importantly, support among the uh, working class, the urban middle class, and indeed some rural support. Now, the Mexican embodiment of this was Francisco Madero, well-to-do northern landlord who got widespread support in opposition to the old regime in 1909-10, especially among the growing urban middle class, but a very important urban working class component too, also from some peasants and farmers who were nurtured in the strong tradition, what I referred to as Mexican folk liberalism. I can't explain that for want of time, but I could, if it, it, it was a, something that he could appeal to with considerable success. Madero promised liberal democracy, which was a bold promise given Mexico's very shaky democratic record through the 19th century and the authoritarian practices of the old regime. There is no very clear-cut nationalist or indeed anti-clerical content to his programme. I stress that because of what's coming in a minute. And when it came to social reform, by which I mean mostly land or labour reform, Madero believed rather optimistically that progress could be made gradually and consensually through the ballot box. Meanwhile, property rights would be respected and land reform at most might be sort of given a nudge by fiscal policy. So the liberal constitutionalist state, as he saw it, would be limited, democratic, compatible with market capitalism of the kind which he had successfully practised. Now, it seems to me there are fairly clear counterparts of Madero Maderismo in other cases. Uh, Barnave and the French Feuillon at the start of the French Revolution, Sun Yat-sen in China, uh, the Society of Ottoman Liberals in Turkey, the Russian cadets, uh, Azana and Negrin in the Spanish Republic of the 1930s, to the liberal wing of the Cuban Revolution, who were quickly ousted by Castro. All of these loosely favoured a constitutional liberal regime, a degree of democracy, and at best very moderate socio-economic reform. They all also stressed education, which was very important to uplift the people particularly because many of those people were not very liberal to start with. Now, of course, there are important differences among this group. It's no surprise that in China and the Ottoman Empire, liberalism had a sharper nationalist edge, which reflected resentment against foreign uh, tutelage and intervention. We can also, I think, note a common outcome. Constitutional liberalism usually failed. It yielded to one of three outcomes. Either military counter-revolution, it was just crushed. That happened in Mexico and China in the short term, happened in Spain in the 1930s in the longer term. 
Sometimes it yielded to radical social revolution, Russia, Cuba, or China in the longer term. And finally, in some cases, it yielded to what I'm going to discuss in a minute as Jacobin Revolution, France, Mexico, and the Ottoman Empire. Now, liberalism failed for all sorts of different reasons. I'm not suggesting it's common in every case. In the Mexican case, not because it was very socially radical, it wasn't, but because the underlying consensus, which I think is probably necessary for a functioning liberal democracy, was absent. And that was because the revolution had unleashed latent social and other tensions which could not be peacefully accommodated within electoral politics. In other words, revolutions which by definition involve sharp socio-political polarisation are probably the worst context in which to try and introduce an infant democracy. The same was true in part of Cuba and indeed Bolivia in the 1950s. In Cuba, the revolutionary leadership showed little regard for so-called bourgeois democracy and given their military triumph in 1959, they had the power to take complete control of what was a relatively small, well-integrated and thus controllable island. I mean, running Cuba in a centralised fashion a lot easier than running Mexico or indeed even Bolivia. And in doing so, they ousted their erstwhile liberal constitutional allies. Elsewhere, international warfare, I've suggested that in these two cases, warfare is not relevant, but in other cases, international warfare made the task even more difficult. Uh, one thinks of the experience of, of Russia, Ottoman Turkey and China, where both structural and conjunctural factors conspired against a liberal constitutionalist programme. So typically, while many revolutions seem to begin with a liberal constitutionalist overture, that motif often fades very rapidly, gives way to something else. Now, the second collective actor to touch on is the urban working class, a category which I'm uh, assuming combines both a spatial, cultural, i.e. urban feature, and a class structural uh, quality, which is what Stefan defined his working class as quite correctly. The first, the urban location, um, implies obviously that you're in a densely populated environment which may present opportunities for effective collective action, as in Red Petrograd, but also for regime repression. In Mexico in 1907, trade unions, and again in 1910 when the revolution first began, the cities were the worst place to do it. They were, again, crushed very quickly and easily. And in a number of other cases, it seems to me, a roughly similar story applies. Uh, Generalising a bit wildly, the German Revolution in 1919 that you talked about, or Shanghai in 1927, are cases where the uh, counter-revolutionary, or whatever you want to call them, forces uh, were able to control cities much more easily. And what that meant was that revolutionaries who wanted to continue the struggle took to the countryside. They adopted a strategy giving priority to what Che Guevara called Los de la Sierra, the people of the mountains or the, or the countryside, and thus producing what Huntingdon actually rather confusingly calls the eastern path of revolution. That's one in which provincial insurgents come from the countryside, build up their forces and converge on a conservative, not counter-revolutionary, uh, capital. And of course that strategy... It's a bit confusing because actually Mexico and Cuba fit that strategy, and that's, they're not very Eastern. But what that means, of course, is that you need mass peasant participation. And I'll get to the peasants in a moment. 
Now, the two exceptions to this familiar pattern of, if you like, provincial rural mobilization converging on the cities, which is the pattern, as I say, of Mexico, China, Cuba, the two exceptions are France, particularly Paris, 1789, Russia, St. Petersburg, and Moscow in 1917. And these are the two cases in which the urban working class insurrection is, at least for a while, very successful. So here you have the famous sans-culottes. I mean, here they're sort of sitting around boozing, but they are also politically quite effective too. That uh, comparison may be valid, but of course it conceals a very obvious fact that needs to be stressed. The French, particularly Parisian urban, urban working class, were mostly artisans and city poor, hence the sans-culottes. The Russian workers were particularly in terms of their mobilisation in 1917, industrial workers, many congregated in very large units. I'm dependent here a lot on the work of Steve Smith. In this respect, Russia was the outlier because factory production with heavy industry had grown rapidly, both in the 1890s with Vita, and again because of the demands of the war after 1914. So here you have working-class insurrection... These are the guys, these are in red Petrograd. Uh, I'm afraid perhaps somebody can tell me afterwards what's, what it says, but um, these are mobilised workers, reasonably well-armed in 1917. Now, uh, with the exception of Germany in 1919, which is a possible parallel, I mean, Barrington Moore makes some interesting comments, so I'm not going to go there, that this Russian story of armed, successful armed insurrection by industrial workers is, I think, quite unusual. In most of the other countries we're looking at, industry was less developed. Uh, The bulk of the urban working class were more artisans, some better off, some desperately poor. They resembled the sans-culottes in some ways more than the metal workers of Red Petrograd. So to take my case, Mexico City in 1910 contained only 10,000 factory workers, which was about 3% of the total city population, and one-third of those were women. The biggest concentration of factory workers were in textiles and cigarettes. And in particular, what you have here, this is the biggest factory in Mexico City, or indeed Mexico, the Buen Tono Cigarette Factory, they're all women. And indeed, uh, beyond that, if you took the whole city labour force, not focusing on factories, you would find that uh, seamstresses and dressmakers were actually more numerous than industrial factory workers, and both of those groups were outnumbered by the 65,000 female domestic servants who were about 30% of the urban labour force. So you have a labour force radically different from that which, say, Steve Smith analyses in the case of Russia. Uh, I think the Ottoman Empire, I've dipped into one or two books, uh, looks a bit more like the Mexican pattern. Now, the same argument can be put in a slightly different way. This is a well-known argument. Namely, major revolutions seem to have occurred in more developing countries or economies where heavy industry is largely lacking, where artisan production is dominant, and the peasantry is still a major component. Or again, another variation on that, which I throw out just for consideration, is that revolutions may often be the work not of confident rising classes like Tawney's gentry or Marx's burgeoning bourgeoisie, but rather of embattled, threatened classes who are facing decline. Sometimes peasants or artisans, or now we have Trevor Roper's declining gentry. You could do the English gentry. There was a huge debate that went on for years and years about that, which I, I won't go into. So we do need to pay attention to the artisan population, the alliances which they strike with other groups. Now, in Mexico... Artisans not only outnumbered industrial workers, they also displayed a distinct urban political culture. So I'm stressing 
a kind of urban culture as well as the fact that they are uh, workers. Uh, this is based partly on old tradition, going back to the colonial guilds, uh, long-standing urban residents. Most Mexican artisans were not recent peasant migrants, as Russian factory workers were. They formed part of a common urban culture, and quite often, not invariably, they rather looked down their noses at the country people, the campesinos, the peasants, sometimes with an inflection of racism because they were brown and more Indian than the uh, city workers. And the city workers were also disproportionately literate. Mexico City had a literacy rate of a bit over 50%. The national figure was 20%. Now that's due to various factors, a large middle class. It's also due to the fact that you have in Mexico City, as in one or two other big Mexican cities, educated or literate workers attached to a somewhat bookish culture and with a desire for sort of self-improvement. Now this syndrome, this pattern, the aspiring but often quite austere working class culture has many global parallels. Uh, coal mining valleys of South Wales, primitive Methodists in England, uh, the, 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 the anarchist groups in parts of particularly South and Southeastern Spain. I have a picture. These people don't look so bookish. These are actually the anarchists of Casas Viejas, but this is actually at the time of their, their uprising in 1934. But this was, again, if you read the very good history by Jerome Mintz, these people, again, are very much attached to reading, literature, abstinence, avoiding drink, uh, and collective betterment. And Russia, too, had equivalents of this, although, again, Steve Smith says that they're actually a rather small, unrepresentative group. So in Mexico, urban artisans play a key role in first electoral mobilization uh, and then the formation of revolutionary armies. In the state of Veracruz, very important Gulf state, had a large textile factory proletariat, but the pioneer revolutionaries, the leaders, are people like Gavira, Carpenter, Tapia, Saddlemaker, Mendoza, a shopkeeper. One could prolong that list. And when the revolution triumphed by the early 20s, the very lively radical politics of the port of Veracruz, which was a sort of hotbed of urban radicalism, uh, involved several interesting components. Very important one was the, the Sindicato, the Trade Union of Prostitutes. That's not them, that's a different group. Um, the Association of Tenants, the Inquilinos. I think these may be Inquilinos. That is, tenants who uh, were aggrieved about very high rent, slum conditions... The strategically placed stevedores union, not industrial workers, but the, the dockers were very important, and they were led by the guy you can just about see sitting in the front with the glasses, Eron Proal, who was a tailor, a rather bohemian character, uh, who was the, the very much the anarchist leader of this uh, group of urban uh, protesters and mobilised people. In Mexico City, too... Uh, Working-class radicalism tended to be the work of artisans who filled the ranks of the Casa del Obrero Mundial, which Stefan referred to. I've got one picture of them. And again, another thing that strikes me about these, they're quite um, sharp dressers. These are not people coming out in their overalls sort of covered in grease. The, oh, perhaps they were in the day, but they're, they're dressed up and, and they read newspapers and they discussed important things, including events from around the world, which, uh, again, Stefan talked about. These were men, most were, were, were men, although in Veracruz the women's group was very important, steeped in the old liberal patriotic tradition. And I think for them, liberalism provided a bridge to a sort of more radical, uh, often anarchist kind of set of beliefs. I mentioned austerity, education, self-improvement, and a suspicion, if not downright hostility, to the Catholic Church, which they believed was backward, obscurantist, and, and they were 
often right, allied with bosses and landlords. When it came to patriotism, they married traditional sentiments uh, against Spaniards, the old colonial power, but also many of the managers and bosses that they faced in the big cities also happened to be Spaniards. <coughs> Interesting, the Spaniards, I think, were much more targeted than Americans. There were some disliked and hated American bosses and owners, but actually the Spaniards were often the target group. So whichever it was, a degree of nationalism, as in China or Turkey, sharpened this class conflict. Uh, so granted a common culture, shared residence, historic commitment to radical liberalism often mutating into anarchism, these uh, working-class people forged alliances with the middle class, initially under Madero, and then in 1915, as the revolution was at its height, they formed the so-called Red Battalions. This is a slightly kind of idealised woodcut. Uh, 6,000 industrial and other workers who joined up with uh, General Obregón and in return for certain benefits formed Um, a quite important military component within the so-called Constitutionist Revolution. Uh, The notion that in doing so, the workers perversely took up arms against their peasant comrades is a bit too simple, points often made, but there was some truth in it. And it speaks to the fact, which I mentioned, that the the leaders of the Casal Obrero Mundial, given their character, urban origins and so on, did often tend to disdain peasant ignorance and superstition. And so when the Zapatistas, here you have them entering Mexico City, when the Zapatistas entered, quite a lot of the urban workers were not at all happy about this. First you'll see the version of Guadalupe standard, so these were benighted clerical peasants. They also messed up the city economy, they cut off the water supply, they closed down supply to the textile factories. So a a, a sort of notional urban worker-peasant alliance was extremely fragile and hard to sustain. And of course that is something again you saw clearly in the French Revolution, I mean the sans-culotte Republican forces crushing the peasants of the Vendée. So I'm suggesting, to paraphrase a bit, that artisanal workers are on the whole more important in these revolutionary situations, particularly in Mexico, than industrial workers, in which respect Russia is something of an outlier. Um, In Russia, Bolshevik statism finally prevailed and a sort of residual working-class anarchism which did exist was annihilated, and I think it's true to say, though I know very little about the Chinese case, that something similar happened there too. Now, in Mexico, a different form of statism, clearly not Bolshevism, exemplified by Calles, and we're going to be talking about him in the last uh, few minutes, uh, a different kind of relationship evolved. What we have here is Plutarch Elias Calles, the president, later boss of Mexico, which I'll discuss on the left, with the hat. On the right, you have Luis Morones, who was for many years the prominent labor leader in Mexico. He originally was in the Casa mentioned before. Uh, he then became leader of the so-called CROM, which was initially a rather anarchistic organization, which gradually came to terms with the emerging revolutionary regime. And by the 1920s and early 30s, these two formed a very sort of close dyad. Moroni's not only led the biggest labor confederation, he was also minister of communications, much to his own personal benefit, but also at the same time giving some benefits to the workers whom he mobilised. The CROM that he led claimed about 2 million members, that was inflated, but by Latin American standards that was a very big uh, labour organisation. 
And so we see, as the revolution came to an end and the new regime uh, gradually established itself, that the old sort of anarchistic leanings of the working class were gradually marginalised and annihilated. And thus, as Charles Meyer has argued, this is in his Leviathan 2.0 book, from about the 1870s onwards, across the world, uh, states in general tended to become more robust. They grew in scope and strength. And political movements of all stripes, even some anarchists or ex-anarchists like Morones, had to reckon with the state. Mexico was a classic example. My penultimate case to touch on is the peasantry, or popular rural movements. I don't want to get into a discussion about sort of who are peasants. Typically, these were committed to more local, autonomous projects, land reform, self-government. They often displayed some degree of nostalgic, backward-looking features, the desire to restore the old peasant community, the Mir in Russia. Perhaps they gilded it a bit. But they also had radical and forward-looking goals, such as land reform and local democracy. I mean, the distinction between forward-looking and backward-looking is often made, but I think sometimes it's a bit overdone and probably not worth pursuing. Now, some, in, in the Mexican case, some peasant rebels or rural rebels clearly sought, above all, autonomy and self-government. I've called these elsewhere serranos, meaning people from the highlands. These were people in rather more remote, rough communities with a tradition of militancy, of fighting. You have in the centre with moustache Pancho Villa and some of his uh, early revolutionary comrades. They somewhat epitomise this um, rural what I'm calling Serrano uh, popular movement. On the other hand, there were also, to use again Mexican terminology, agrarista peasants. You could call them agrarians, but that causes some confusion in English usage. These were people who wanted an extensive program of land reform. These people, by and large, were not so interested in land reform. So in one case, you have people, all of them peasants, rural dwellers, uh, from the peripheral regions for whom the state and its abuses, taxation, corrupt officials, conscription were the real problems. On the other, you had lowland commercial agricultural communities aggrieved at dispossession and who therefore targeted the landlords, although the landlords were often in close cahoots with the state. So there's a broad peasant movement with at least two major dimensions. Now, I think peasant movements in general, looking not just at Mexico but in other cases, um, seem to ally with all manner of different formal ideologies. Uh, in Mexico, you had powerful liberal peasant movements in the 19th century. You have anarchists, socialists, communists, religious millenarian ones. I will say in passing, I think that millenarian movements are much exaggerated in many cases. People like to see them in Mexico, when I think they rarely existed. Uh, I think in the case of southern Spain... Uh, Raymond Carr and others have stressed millenarianism. I think that's also been significantly overdone. Um, Hobbes Ball, I mean, The Primitive Rebels is a great book, but the millenarian bit, I think, is a bit overdone. Uh, so you have a variety of peasant possible affiliations, some also, of course, royalist or even fascist in Eastern Europe. What may be common to many of these was a desire for autonomy or self-government, allied to notions of economic patrimony, often associated, as the anthropologist Jim Scott has stressed, with the idea of the moral economy. And clearly, as I mentioned, peasant mobilisation, we know this very well, has been key to many major revolutions, France, Mexico, Russia, China, and so on. And the common causality, as Eric Wolfe argued many years ago in his seminal work, Peasant Wars of the 20th Century, common element was the corrosive spread of market capitalism, 
plus the growth of stronger states endowed with greater political and technological power. Now, I think that's reasonably well known and probably not too contentious. The question of ideological alignments, how are wider peasants ally with what seems to be quite a wide range of um, sort of ideological projects, is much more complicated. It, it does seem to me that there is something of a presumption of preference for programs promising decentralization, self-government, avoiding interference from the state, a degree of commitment to peasant landed patrimony, whether through land reform or recovery of the old commune or whatever. Federalism, liberalism, anarchism have a certain affiliation or resonance with those particular concerns. Now, it's true, of course, that peasants, who have to be pragmatic probably more than anybody, do strike alliances with centralising movements like Bonapartism or indeed Chinese communism. But the Bonapartists did at least offer the maintenance of the landed status quo after the revolution, which had given the peasants some benefits. And, of course, in the case of China, the alliance with the communists was forged in the heat of the Japanese invasion when the communists alone seemed to promise honest, capable, effective government. Well, that's the explanation I have picked up. More typically, and perhaps more logically, peasants often seem to ally with radical, liberal, decentralising and anarchist movements. People like Nestor Makhno in the Ukraine during the... Russian Revolution. In the case of Mexico, so sorry, that's his, that's that's his forces. That's the the Magnosheva with 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 the anarchist black flag. Very powerful but briefly um, successful uh, revolutionary force. Um, in the case of Mexico, classic example would be Zapata, the Zapatistas, who did acquire. A genuine or bring about a genuine land reform, but by virtue of doing a deal with the emerging uh, revolutionary state. So, to go back to Charles Meyer again, the growth of the state, which has been pretty much a constant since the late 19th century, means that political movements premised on its demise or debilitation have faced an uphill struggle, anarchism above all, which usually ends either in outright defeat or a sort of grudging compromise. As Meyer puts it, Listen to this quote carefully. Seems to me to be using a rather unfortunate choice of words. Maya said that from about the 1870s, quote, the organised national or imperial state was Trump. Well, I'd say, you know, absolute omen to that. But the point is, I think, valid that anarchist and radical liberal federalist movements had a real dilemma as to what to do with the state. Finally, for the last, what have I got, about 15 minutes? Yep. Good. Uh, I will turn to what is perhaps the more original last bit of the talk. Um, with whom or with what did anarchist liberals and others have to compromise? If constitutional liberalism lost out, if peasant federalism and anarchism lost out, who were the winners? Who were the state builders who contributed to the Leviathan 2.0? Now, apart from sort of outright state repression, where movements are just crushed, there are, I think, two principal alternatives associated with what I'm calling successful revolution, at least successful in the sense of acquiring power and using it and transforming society. Now, whether you transform it the way you originally intended or for the benefit of whom, that's another question. The most obvious, I clearly mentioned, would be communist parties committed to powerful states and parties linked to command economies. 
Communist success clearly means the death of both liberal constitutionalism or bourgeois democracy and the subjugation of the peasantry to a command economy involving quite likely forced collectivisation. And that's a fairly grim story we know about. There is, however, I'll suggest, a second less obvious variant, which I'm calling the Jacobin syndrome or persuasion or whatever. The Jacobin persuasion sought the creation of a strong centralised state based on notions of republican citizenship a national sentiment, but remaining a broadly market capitalist economy. The Jacobins, as Simon Sharma says, were great respecters of property. Though they did, like others, uh, consider an enhanced role for a a regulatory but not an asset-owning state. Now, Jacobinism made much of its popular legitimacy, but it was prepared when the national interest and raison d'etat demanded it to ride roughshod over popular groups, not just fanatics and counter-revolutionaries, but its own popular supporters, such as the sans-culottes, when they chose. Now, a key feature of the Jacobin persuasion was visceral hostility to the church, sometimes even to religious belief in general, which was seen as antithetical to republican rule, national integration, and economic progress, because the church promoted superstition, irrationalism, and, of course, connived with well-to-do conservatives. Now, of course, the origin of all this, the original French Jacobins, a bunch of them here they are in their sort of nice, I think, centrally heated uh, convent, ex-convent, debating what to do in the 1790s. Now, of course, Jacobinism does crop up, even calling itself Jacobinism elsewhere. E.P. Thompson looks at 18th century England. In 20th century Mexico, people were referred to as Jacobinos, so the term travelled. Jacobin currents also circulated in the major communist revolutions in Russia, China. Trotsky has some interesting things to say. Richard, not here now, uh, mentioned it in uh, quoting Lenin. And I think that the Bolsheviks sort of appropriated the centralising nationalist, republican, anti-clerical components of Jacobinism, but of course adopted radically different economic programmes of dirigism, forced industrialisation, rural collectivisation. Now elsewhere, Jacobinism sort of maintained greater coherence. Obviously France is one such case. Now Bonapartism... It is true, compromised with the church. You have the the concordat here with the Catholic Church by Napoleon, but on terms which permitted the establishment under Napoleon of a strong, centralising nationalist state. Furthermore, church-state conflict did not... uh, The compromise, sorry, did not last, and in the later 19th century, the Third Republic, the struggle between church and state was resumed when we could say the neo-Jacobins of the Third Republic reasserted the state and tried to curtail the political and educational role of the church. Then in France, as a bit later in Mexico, the schoolteacher and the priest confronted each other in a battle for hearts and minds. Now, this is a Mexican woodcut, so I'm going to come back to it in a moment when I turn to Mexico. And what you have here are the evil clericals. They're not actually priests, but they are attacking the poor schoolteacher. The children are cowering over on the far side. He's holding up his ABC. And this kind of encapsulated the widespread view and indeed the practice of conflict between teacher and priest, between maestro and cura or cure. Now, Mexico is therefore another example of what I'm calling a Jacobin project of persuasion. Um, the Jacobins played, and I've argued this elsewhere, I'm going to skip it a bit, uh, a major role in the armed revolution, the creation of the state in the 20s and 30s. 
The old regime was defeated, liberalism wilted, didn't really recover till the late 20th century, and agrarianism, land reform survived, but very much under the control of a centralising reformist state. And even though there was a brief flirtation with socialism, a more dirigiste, radical policy in the 1930s, even after 1946, when the PRI uh, came to power, the dominant party, which Tom touched upon, there was still a sort of residual Jacobinism in terms of nationalism, republicanism, centralising, a residual anti-clericalism, but all happily coexisting with a broadly capitalist market economy. So it would be a stretch to call the pre-Jacobin, but like the French Third Republic, it had some of the genetic imprint of its Jacobin uh, origins. Now, the great leader of Mexican Jacobinism was Plutarco Elias Calles, who started off, this is him, as a sort of young revolutionary warlord of the second rank. By the 1920s, he became the great architect of the new state. Uh, here we see him in slightly more mature civilian guise, creator of the official party, dogged centralizer, robust nationalist, protagonist of education, science, secularism, and above all, visceral en enemy of the Catholic Church. Rising governor of his own state, later a, a minister, finally president, and even after president, he was the jefe maximo, the big boss of the political system, which he dominated right through to 1935. In pursuit of his centralizing nationalist goals, he battled the US foreign oil companies, finally reached a kind of detente. He curbed the power of regional warlords and forged an alliance, as I already mentioned, with organized labor. So we have Calles again, now yet older, uh, buddying up with Luis Morones. And although the term socialism was often used about him and by him, he had no intention of creating a socialist or command economy, he had big business interests himself. His goal was to achieve a so-called equilibrium between labor and business with the central state as the arbiter. Above all, he wanted to combat the Catholic Church, which he saw as reactionary, hostile to the state, responsible for Mexico's backwardness. He sought to break not just the wealth, the wealth of the church had actually mostly gone already, the political and cultural power of the church using both negative sanctions, restricting the number of priests, imposing other regulations, expelling foreign priests, but also with positive incentives. The promotion of public education above all, the creation of secular fiestas and rituals, sport, science, technology. And what you have here, it's not a very good picture, is Akema Santos. What's going to happen is these people are anti-clericals mobilised by the state. They're about to burn a wooden icon. There was a fair amount of deliberate, organised public iconoclasm. Now, it's been suggested this was kind of window dressing, devised to distract the Mexicans from more serious questions. As far as I can see, Calles was deadly serious, and his policies towards the church were not that opportunistic. If anything, they cost him political capital, and he enacted them because he really believed in them. He was not alone. One could do a checklist of lots of other Jacobins who took a similar line. As a result of this, the Mexican state provoked a major Catholic revolt in the 1920s, the Cristero Rebellion. These are Cristeros. They look pretty much like the old revolutionaries of the previous decade. This has quite rightly and correctly been called Mexico's Vendée, exactly the same syndrome as, you ha as happened in the French Revolution in Western France. Eventually, the war died down. There was a degree of partial compromise, but the sort of war of positions continued. Uh, go back to this picture through the 1930s. You had continued clashes, sometimes violent, between the representatives of the anti-clerical state and the church. 
Now, Caius's maximal goal of eliminating the church was never realized. Like other radical leaders in France, Russia, he found the church too tough and not to crack. Uh, the kind of institutions he brought in, such as secular fiestas, the fiesta of the coconut and the pineapple and socialist baptism, socialist weddings, none of those put down roots. We can still see them as a sort of historical memory in jerky black and white newsrails, but they they never lasted. And they failed not because this secular religion proved to be an inferior religion to its Catholic rival, but I think because it wasn't a religion at all. People often talk about it as a secular religion, but that seems to be rather a a misconception, unless it's just purely metaphorical. It could not connect to the transcendental. It did not offer solace to poor Mexicans in times of hardship. The great majority of the Mexican people therefore remained Catholic, and when that attachment did begin to fray in the late 19th century, it was not due to any secular religion, but to evangelical Protestantism, which offered spiritual connection, revivalism, faith healing, hellfire sermons, and sometimes large dollops of American money. So the the chief rival to Catholicism proved not to be the anti-clerical state, but actually evangelical Protestantism. So the Jacobin state found it hard to change hearts and minds, but it could at least veto institutions. So, for example, the fact that Mexico does not have a Christian Democrat party in any real sense, in the way that Chile or Italy does, is partly because of that policy. Now, the story of Mexican anti-clericalism, last uh, five minutes and I'll finish, um, has two interesting parallels. One obvious, Spain. One not so obvious, Turkey. They'll say a word about those and then stop. If France was the pioneer of Jacobinism, Italy and Spain also followed suit. And it's not surprising that Spain and Mexico should show certain parallels. there, I'll sketch over a few different, or skip over a few uh, differences. Spanish anti-clericalism, very evident in the 1910s with the tragic week in Barcelona of 1909, uh, or again, most clearly, of course, with the outbreak of the Civil War in 1936, when uh, hundreds of priests and nuns and others were, were, were killed. Uh, nothing like that happened in Mexico. Spanish anti-clericalism was much more virulent and violent. There was violence in Mexico, I would say fairly reciprocal violence, but the Spanish case is much more extreme. When aggrieved Catholics like Graham Greene came to Mexico in the 30s, those were the two books he wrote uh, while he was or based on his Mexican experience, when he compared it to Spain, he was really exaggerating. But there's no question there were parallels, and the Mexicans saw the parallels, perhaps the Spaniards did as well. Uh, nevertheless, the, the church resisted. In Mexico, as I've suggested, it resisted in a more moderate way and succeeded. Of course, in Spain, the church allied with Franco's nationalists and set its stamp on the new regime. Other regimes, of course, communist regimes, did flirt with uh, anti-clericalism. Um, there's a rather bad book by a guy called Paul Freusy, which I read about the plot against God in uh, communist Russia, which also stresses the fact that the attempt to eliminate religion uh, failed. Skip over that, though it wasn't uh, very interesting. But it shows that this is not a syndrome just confined to one or two uh, countries. The final case I want to touch on before I conclude is radically different, Mexico and Turkey, as a comparison. A comparison that's very rarely attempted, although Trotsky did attempt it. Of course, he was in briefly in Turkey. He was later in Mexico. I don't think his comparison is very analytically sound, but it's interesting. 
These two countries do present some obvious parallels. Similar levels of development, small industrial sector, large peasant sector, vulnerable geopolitical location, a mid-19th century liberal episode, the Tanzimat in Turkey, Mexican reformer, followed by a reversion to authoritarian order and progress regimes. Uh, and indeed, what's interesting is, this, although what I'm going to say is a, a sort of structural comparison, there were some people who saw this. In the case of Mexico, one uh, revolutionary leader, Saturnino Cedillo, had quite a cult of Ataturk, and he admired him from afar. I don't think he ever actually met him. But his admiration made sense. Like his Mexican uh, contemporaries, particularly Calles, Ataturk, that's the young Ataturk, came to power by military force, bent on using the state to transform what he saw as a backward society, the victim of predatory foreign powers. Like Calles, or indeed the French Jacobins, he set out, we could say, borrowing Lynn Hunt's phrase, to rationalise and nationalise the Turkish people. And indeed, the French parallel makes sense, because Ataturk was quite a Francophile, he was keen on French uh, social science and other things. Here we have the more mature civil leader of the 20s into the 30s. Ataturk did not espouse socialism. His doctrine, Kemalism, is best seen as a kind of middle way in between individualism and liberalism on the one hand, socialism on the other, and always strongly nationalistic. It's sometimes referred to as totalitarian or fascistic. I have a quick comment on that, which I won't develop. Uh, I think the use of fascism, however much there is a superficial similarity, doesn't work when exported to quite radically different contexts, be it Turkey or Mexico, or I'd add Argentina, for example, with Peronism. There might be some superficial similarities, but the sort of social historical function of these movements is radically different. In particular, of course... The Kemalist state, eventually a one-party state, uh, undertook a kind of ambitious cultural revolution. Uh, so while it's true that he did not radically subvert or change the economic system of Turkey, as I understand it, he did set about changing society in ambitious ways involving dress, <coughs> script, judiciary, limited rights for women, a firm belief in education. All of these have very clear Mexican parallels. Above all, he combated Islam which meant again that an enlightened authoritarian elite set about trying to subvert traditional popular beliefs. Uh, we can see this with Calles in Mexico or with Ataturk in Turkey. And in both cases, it meant developing and building on prior anti-clerical practices. We could push the comparison further. I have a few more. I've had enough speculative fancy, so I shouldn't probably go into this. There's something interesting to do both with the family makeup of these people, um, Absent father, devout mother, both like to drink. I'm not sure what we conclude uh, too much from that. But more importantly, they both came from the more developed, advanced parts of their respective countries. Salonika, in the case of Ataturk, the very progressive northwestern state of Sonora, in the case of Calles, they both grew up on the edge of, to use the awful word, modernity, the US and Europe. And they sought, in a way, to bring that modernity to their respective countries, to Anatolia, in the case of Ataturk, to Indian, backward, central and southeastern Mexico, in the case of Calles. Yet, interestingly, when they did that, they also drew upon traditional symbols from that region. So you have things like the Hittite sun symbol being picked up by the young Turks, whereas in Mexico, what you have are these famous murals by Diego de Vera, 
which uh, embody and uh, eulogize, romanticize uh, old Indian civilizations in the service of a revolution that is progressively nationalizing and rationalizing the Indians themselves. And it may also be finally worth mentioning that these leaders, Ataturk, Kayes from Sonora, others as well, one thinks of Stalin, uh, Napoleon, uh, I've got one more to mention, um, came from outlying regions. They came to the centre, got hold of it, and then sought to reform and change it in a dramatic way. So whether this can count as a recurrent revolutionary syndrome, I'm not sure. Um, the other case that is very obvious is that of Che Guevara, who, of course, noting was not from, he wasn't from Cuba at all, from Argentina, first in Cuba successfully, then Bolivia unsuccessfully. He came in as an outsider who wanted to revolutionise and substantially uh, change the society. So, um, by way of conclusion, uh, one minute, then I'll stop. Uh, it does seem to me that although it may seem anachronistic or incorrect, the, the use of the Jacobin label with the connotations I've mentioned does give us some mileage for comparing revolutions such as the Young Turk, the Mexican, uh, which are not usually uh, compared. Now, it's true, finally, that in both Mexico and Turkey in recent years, we have seen a rollback of that old Jacobin project, a relaxation of religious restrictions, detente with the clerical authorities. So the Jacobin persuasion has, if you like, had a good run for its money, but like other political cultural projects, it eventually fades, becoming, certainly in Mexico, not sure about Turkey, more a matter of myth and memory than a practical political programme. But for a good many decades, it was an important factor and one perhaps we should build into our comparative study of revolutions. Thank you. Thank you.